Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stemmel Major. In this episode we're reading Alan Collard's Around the World Alone and we're on chapter 3. Chapter 3. On course for the Cape of Good Hope. Saturday, September 8th, 1973. Alain Collard! A voice was like thunder and echoed against the walls. The man was like the voice. Captain Mainmast Gautier, Dean of the Cape Horn Veterans, towered by a head over the crowd which separated before him as he made his way to the edge of the dock. He unfurled a stiff, yellowed marine chart and looked at Manureva. Alain he said again. This chart has been used in 22 passages around Cape Horn, all of which ended in a safe arrival in port. I turn it over to you with a prayer that you will bring it home safely again. It is impossible to describe my emotions as we cast off and Manareva began to move away from the crowded pier. Everyone, it seemed, had come to wish me bon voyage, and the dock was packed with people, my parents, their friends, my friends, people I had worked with. As the boat cleared the harbour, I thought of Dinard, on the far side of the Rance River, from which only fifteen months before I had left on the transatlantic race. On the card table, which was to be my desk, I opened a large red logbook and turned to page 21. The last thing I had written in a noticeably unsteady hand was 15 minutes past midnight, GMT, across the finish line. I turned to the following page as yet unmarked and with a ruler drew columns with the following headings Time, Wind, Sea, Course, Log and Comments. I added another, Thoughts. I looked at the preceding page again. Its heading was Plymouth to Newport. At the top of page 22, after the date, I wrote San Marlo to Sydney. God willing. It was late afternoon and the air was grey with fog. A gust of wind sped us to the open sea. I made an entry in my log. Time, 1750. Wind, northeast. Sea, calm. Course, steady. Log, 311.79. Comments, have left San Marlo. By then the boats that had formed Manareva's escort out of the harbour were turning back one by one. At 19.15 we had reached the level of the Vio Banque, where the Collard clan had gathered for a last glimpse of Manareva. Then their silhouettes also vanished. Well, I'm alone, I told myself, with 14,000 miles of ocean ahead of me. Instead of thinking about it, I'd better start thinking about the sails. At 20.30 we encountered a violent gale and I had to lower the mizzen, I duly noted that there were four broken battens in the mainsail. What a great beginning. By 2200, I had passed between Banuich and Rochette and the sea was calm again. I trimmed the mainsail and hoisted the mizzen. My speed at the close of this first day was seven knots, and I was satisfied. Sunday, September 9th. I have the whole night to think about the way that lies ahead of me, to go over the preparations that I've made, and, I hope, to comfort myself with the thought that I've done everything I can to assure that I'll be able to beat the record set by Sir Francis Chichester. The memory of my departure from St. Marlo is still on my mind. The old port evokes images of three-masted vessels of other times, cruising the shipping lanes under full sail. It's my intention to follow in their wakes, as it were, 
and to try to equal their fantastic speed. I've set a course to skirt the Canary Islands, Dakar and the Cape Verde Islands, cross the equator into the South Atlantic against the southeastern trade winds and round the Cape of Good Hope. From there, Manareva will continue through the Roaring Forties to the Amsterdam Islands, cross the Indian Ocean and reach Sydney by sailing between the southern tip of Australia and the island of Tasmania. Sydney, therefore, will be my first port of call, the end of the first leg of my journey, a distance of 14,000 miles to travel in less than three months, in less than 80 days to be exact if I want to beat Cutty Sark's record, and in less than 106 days to beat Chichester. Since I left on September 8th, I hope to see off Usson the great sailing ships participating in the Whitbread Around the World race organised by the British. It should be very exciting for me as I sail southward in the Atlantic to be able to test my boat and compare her performance to that of those large single-hulled vessels with their crews of no less than six. It goes without saying that these yachts, most of them of modern construction, will give a good account of themselves and that some of them will be in the next, the 1976, single-handed transatlantic race. I should be able to get a pretty good idea of Manoreva's capabilities and draw some valuable conclusions for future improvements. The Whitbread, which is sponsored by the Royal Naval Sailing Association, is in four stages. Portsmouth to the Cape, the Cape to Sydney, Sydney to Rio, and Rio to Portsmouth, a distance of some 30,000 miles. The handicaps of the participants, which are calculated for each stage, take into account length, the square footage of sail, tonnage, stability, and a number of other elements, all of which result in a corrected time factor. Thus, at least in theory, Vessels of different sizes can compete on a basis of equality. Since I'm to have company on the ocean, I've compiled some information on the yachts in the race. Of course, I would have liked nothing better than to be participant in the race also, but Manareva, with its centre hull flanked by two lateral stabilisers, cannot compete on equal footing with boats of more conventional design. Then, too, I have this personal date with Cape Horn, in the middle of the second stage of the trip. I expect that I'll begin that leg of my journey from Sydney at the end of December or the beginning of January after a month's layover in Australia. First, south to New Zealand, then straight for the Cape, my big moment, and also the most dangerous. Altogether, La Hora de Verdad, my moment of truth, as the bullfighters say. It will come when Manareva enters the narrow strait that separates the South American continent from Antarctica, where the sea seems to shrink only to gather force to punish trespassers for their insolence. After that, my course northward in the Atlantic, which will be pretty much in mid-ocean until I cross the course I followed in the first leg of the trek, will seem simplicity itself, the straight track before a horse after the jumps of a steeplechase have been left behind. On the second leg of my journey, also, I will be in the same area as the boats in the Whitbread race, and thanks to the circumstance, I will have the advantage of maximum safety, an important consideration for me. The British Navy will have ships stationed in the area to keep an eye on the boats in the race. So, although I will be sailing alone, I will be surrounded by about 20 boats, all under the protective surveillance of Her Britannic Majesty's ships. Today, Sunday, I naturally plotted my course about 20 times. More prosaically, I also replaced the four battens in the mainsail, broken during yesterday's blow. That, of course, was the first order of business. At about 1700 hours, the sea was calm. I slacked the sails and, with the boat moving at only two knots, I went below for a nap. At 2200 hours, with the sea still calm, I took another nap. 
my daily routine is beginning to work itself out. Monday, September 10th. At 0800 hours, I had my first telephone contact with Shaw and spoke to my elder brother, Christian. About midday, I skirted Usson, a tiny island off the coast of Brittany, in dense fog, but with unabated enthusiasm. Two hours later, I had my first contact with Radio Television Luxembourg, after which I took time for a nap. When I awoke, the fog had dissipated. I got through to my parents on the telephone. It was as though I hadn't yet left France. Several cargo ships passed on the opposite tack. I was not yet alone. Today, I hope, was the first in a series of rather leisurely days, a period during which I'll be able to rest and recover from the months of hard work that went into preparing for the cruise. Throughout the first night, the sky remained clear and the sea was calm. I brought my speed up to 12 knots on a course marked by a line of merchant ships. I spent several hours putting things in order in my quarters and putting the finishing touches to my rigging. This evening, the sky was magnificent. There had been lightning earlier, but soon the moon was bright, foretelling, in my opinion, a calm night. As it turned out, I was right. At about 0700 hours, a delicate pink sunrise confirmed my prediction. Early Thursday morning, I rounded Cape Finisterre, and shortly thereafter, I hoisted my jib and in the process, got thoroughly wet in a violent storm. During the afternoon, I was in radio contact with my old friend Roger Bouchier, a restaurant owner in Port Saint-Germain, and then with Tura. My tour of the world was beginning, it seemed, with a tour of my friends. I took a nap late in the afternoon. As soon as I awoke, I stumbled out onto the deck, still rather groggy, my eyes half-closed, to perform a perfectly natural function. I stood there, one hand grasping the rail, sleepy eyes scanning the sea, paying my tribute to Neptune. Suddenly, a short distance from Manareva, perhaps 200 yards away, I saw a movement in the water. I looked more closely, this time with eyes wide open. It appeared to be a long black tube of some kind rising slowly to the surface. The tube was emitting a rush of bubbles and I had the distinct feeling that it was looking at me. I quickly finished what I was doing and beat a hasty retreat. It was not until I was in my quarters that I was able to calmly identify this black object that looked like the arm of a giant squid poised to strike. It was the air hose of a submarine coming to the surface. When you're half asleep, the sight of something long and black rising to the surface in a geyser of bubbles tends to awaken atavistic memories of sea serpents. I confess that I am not particularly proud of my reaction. However, my visitor seemed to be as surprised as I was by this unexpected encounter, and after a few moments of hesitation, the head submerged and, trailing a stream of bubbles, it slowly disappeared into the distance. Friday, September 14th. A small misadventure during the night. The boat was hit by a large wave and my quarters were flooded by a rush of water through the air vent. Before dawn, I sighted a couple of boats on the other tack. The sea began to get rough around noon. It was worse than ever when, at 1700, I sighted a sloop. She was close enough for me to make out the number on her sails. I-4971. It was Giorgio Fox Gear, one of the Italian entries in the Whitbread, close hauled in a brisk wind from the southeast. The Gear was using her jib with her mainsail reefed. I decided to tack in Tasmanareva's performance, under full sail, from mizzen to main against the Italian boat. With new sails and new rigging, one doesn't take chances, and it seemed to me better to find out what, if anything, might be wrong before we reached the roaring forties. Soon, Manareva was abreast of gear, and we were exchanging hand signals. 
I was proud of the way Manareva was handling herself, cutting through the waves, glistening with spray in the orange light of an evening squall. Both boats were holding to the same course, but I was doing about two knots better than gear. I pulled ahead, and the gap began to widen. Soon I was about a mile ahead of the Italians, and then we were too far apart for hand signals. I heard about the other boats on the radio, that Critter was off the coast of Lisbon, ahead of Grand Louis, and that Adventure was in the lead, but only by about 35 miles. Saturday, September 15th. I spent the whole morning tacking and at the same time doing as much as I could of my various chores, adjusting the stays, repairing a broken slide on the mainsail, etc. I also made a note of the first repairs to be made as soon as I reached Sydney, mend the back stays on the mainmast, modify the spinnaker downhaul, work on the winches. By early afternoon, I was abreast of the mouth of the Tagus River. Towards dusk, I was hailed rather loudly by the tanker Jules Verne out of Le Havre. By then, I was tired and I set the self-steerer so that I could take a nap. This device, also known as an automatic pilot and more accurately as a direction and speed anemometer, serves to keep the boat on a proper course in relation to the wind. Part of the mechanism is installed aloft in the direction of the wind and if the boat deviates from a course, a corrected course is transmitted from the aerial to a submerged element and the deviation is rectified, theoretically at least. I woke around 2100 hours, the moon had risen while I slept, and in the distance I could see Lisbon bathed in silvery light. It was a somewhat eerie spectacle, like a vision of an enchanted city, and I celebrated the event by a banquet of sliced, cooked meat, homestyle. I have already been at sea for a week, and it is time for me to draw up my accounts. From the time of my departure, I have sailed 848 nautical miles between meridian points, a record, but it is a record for slowness considering how long the boat has been in the water. I must admit that for the first few days I have been much more concerned with getting proper rest than with speed. Exhausted as I was by the preparations for the voyage and by the panic of the final days, I have been treating myself to relatively long periods of sleep and I have also spent time working in my quarters so that I can feel at home as much as possible. It takes time to get over eight months of unremitting work and stress. Now I'm going to have to make up for lost time. Nonetheless, I'm not too disturbed. Everything seems to have fallen into place and Manareva has found her own rhythm. Close hauled, she pulled ahead of gear and generally speaking, close hauled sailing is the least favourable trim for a trimaran. This has, if anything, increased my confidence in the boat. I haven't the slightest doubt that when the moment of truth comes, both the captain and the ship will be in tip-top shape to handle anything that comes along. If there is a fly in the ointment, it is this. There are cracks at the spot where the forward crossbar is joined to the floats. I will have to ease up a bit when close hauled, because the deflectors and the other gear on the bow, installed with a view to the wind on the quarter, put a strain on this area. Fortunately, the Atomic Energy Commission's tests made it possible for me to ensure that the compartments in the floats are really watertight. Any leaks will be limited to the forward compartment and, even there, the expanded foam will lessen the problem. As far as the masts are concerned, the tests were conclusive. Now that the scene is calm again, I'm going to adjust the middle guys of the mainmast rigging to bend the mast, contrary to house rules. It is midnight, and we are becalmed. Sunday, September 16th. I was up on the bridge at 0500 and saw that a current of some kind has carried me past Lisbon. I could not even see the lights of the city. Today is my birthday 
I've reached my 30th year off the coast of Portugal. The sea did not forget me. As a present, I received a beautiful flying fish about the size of a large mackerel, which landed on the deck. I will have it for lunch. It would be improper for me to refuse the gift. I unwrapped my other presents, given by family and friends, before I sailed from St. Malo. Some chocolate, a selection of my favourite delicacies, a book, a small light green skirt. A skirt? I folded and unfolded it in puzzlement. A joke? A mistake? A sign of some kind? I had no idea. It was incontestably a skirt and a very small one, and it was undoubtedly a present. Gift wrapping, ribbons, bows. Then I remembered. My niece from Dinard had been aboard and Tiura or Manny had given her a gift. She'd left it in the cabin, and I was greatly relieved. I made a note. Adjust the swifter and give the backstay three turns. Modify the main sheet. At 1400, my parents wished me happy birthday via radio telephone. According to Radio Luxembourg, Penduic 6 is already between Madeira and Morocco, and Adventure is some 200 miles behind her. At about 1900 hours, I had a set of excellent weather maps on Manareva's facsimile receiver, a piece of equipment that does a great deal for safe navigation. With a receiver of this kind, there is almost no such thing as an unexpected storm. The maps, showing every depression in the area, are drawn as though by magic on a roll of kaolin paper by a set of styluses activated by distant signals. It is 2100 hours, and the sea is still calm. The speed regulator is pulling too much to the left, and I have to take it down. I will use the automatic electric pilot system. Monday, September 17th. I began the day by an act of outrageous self-indulgence. That is, I took three hours of sound sleep between 06.30 and 09.30. The sky is grey and depressing. I kept busying myself getting ready for my radio contact with RTL, scheduled for 1100 hours. Reception is excellent. The first news was of the race. Penduic 6 is leading and is off the coast of Casablanca, with Great Britain trailing her by 100 miles. I announced my position, 36 degrees 10 minutes north and 10 degrees 20 minutes west, about level with Gibraltar. A cooperative little wind was enabling me to make good time southward, and I hoped to be able to make up for lost time. I went on to tell about my week, lingering a while over the story of my encounter with the submarine. My correspondent seemed amused. I then explained that Tabley's lead in the Whitbread race was to be expected, that he was a demon for speed, and after all, large boats do tend to go fast. As far as I myself am concerned, I went on, I'm going to try to make up for lost time. However, I am the only person aboard Manareva, and you have to remember that the boats in each race have an average of 12 crewmen. While I'm sleeping, for instance, the boat is left pretty much on her own. There's no one on deck to take advantage of every favourable breeze or gust that comes along. My problem is the wind. When there is wind, Manareva holds to course very nicely on automatic pilot. But when the wind is weak or variable, she tends to wander. I'd have to be at the helm 24 hours a day to keep her steady, and that, obviously, is impossible. However, I expect that I'll be able to make up for it when I get a bit further south, where I'll certainly find the trade winds which are fairly constant and sustained out of the northeast. Listening to myself, it occurred to me that the closer I got to Sydney, the more I sounded like a professor giving a lecture. My interviewer seemed concerned about my solitude. He asked if time were heavy on my hands. Like most people, he felt that a man sitting in a boat and waiting for the trade winds must be bored out of his mind. Absolutely not, I answered. 
You'll never believe how much there is to do aboard when you're all alone. You have to spend a great deal of time at the helm, in the galley or tacking, navigating, puttering around, keeping everything shipshape and so forth. I have at least two weeks of work ahead of me right now, just getting everything in order. I listen to music a great deal and I listen to the news more than I used to. The reason, no doubt, is that I am slowing down in my old age, having turned 30 only yesterday. I also confessed that in an orgy of egocentricity, I had listened to Radio Luxembourg constantly during the past week, hoping to hear the sound of my own voice. The interviewer seemed surprised that I could still get his station, whereupon I felt it only fair to remind him that there were other stations on the air as well. Finally, I was assured that I had missed nothing, that my broadcasts were scheduled to begin on Wednesday. My radio contact with France was excellent, and I was delighted to have it. Early in the afternoon, I rigged my Jenicas, which are balloon-like jibs on telescopic booms. This made me miss a radio date with 33 Export, one of the boats in the race that is crewed by friends of mine. I'd reached them yesterday and we chatted for a long time on ship-to-ship radio. They have minor problems also and work to do, but everything seems to be going well enough. I'm sorry I missed talking to them today, although I can't spend all my time on the radio. I wanted to talk to them not only because they're friends, but also because I am very much interested to find out whether or not I'm gaining on them, making up for some of the time I lost during my slow crossing of the Bay of Biscay. During the afternoon, the relative calm of the sea made it possible for me to take time out for a number of chores. I made a weather map, adjusted the exhaust on the head, rearranged the sail bins and so forth, and I ended the day, a peaceful day, but busy, with a solid meal. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.